So I just want to say a quick prayer too, just uh, just to welcome the Lord here. Uh, I just want to thank God for all the faith that He provides us, so that we can see the things that He wants us to see, that we can hope in Christ, that we can truly cherish and love others the way He loved us. He gave Himself up for us, and um, His Spirit abides in us, and may we abide in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And so, uh, yeah, so thanks for the introduction, Seth. And uh, I'm just going to briefly mention, you know, I, I am teaching in Naperville. And my family uh, is here, Alyssa, my wife, and lots of supporters. I have a son, uh, Apollos, who's five months, uh, and Liam, who's 10. And uh, we're, um, you know, happy to be here so often. I take classes at seminary. Our family's here. And when I met Seth last year, uh, through an event at the seminary, we became friends. And so I just want to thank you for being gracious enough to welcome me up here. Um, so the title of our uh, message today is Waiting on Standby. And uh, the way we're going to approach this is through two characters that appear as bookends in Jesus's life. Uh, Simeon, uh, the prophet who meets Jesus at the temple, and Joseph of Arimathea that uh, is there for Jesus just after the crucifixion. And so I want to have us look at the scripture first, these two scriptures side by side, and I want you to consider as I'm reading them uh, in what ways they serve as bookends in Jesus' life. So if we go to uh, the second chapter of Luke, I'll go ahead and, and read this for us. Starting the 25th verse, We hear that, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory of your people Israel. And his father and a mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. So that is our first book in. Uh, let's move to the 23rd chapter, toward the latter end of Luke's Gospel, where we're introduced to Joseph. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock. 
where no one had ever laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the woman who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So there's a lot of different ways that we might see these moments as bookends. I mean, most obviously, Jesus is born eight days later. Simeon is there to welcome him at the preparation in the temple. And then at the end of Jesus' life, just before the resurrection, that's where Joseph holds Jesus in his tomb. And there's lots of other potential bookends, but what I want to focus on is uh, these two qualities ascribed to both men. Both are called righteous. Uh, Simeon is called righteous and devout. Uh, Joseph is called a good and righteous man. So we'll look at what it means to be righteous in Christ. And also the other element that's similar is that they're both waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the kingdom of God. So I'm going to sort of walk through these two qualities and uh, suggest why they're important as bookends on Jesus' life. Why are these two men described in strikingly similar ways? What is this suggesting about uh, the Christ Messiah? And before I do that, I'm just going to share a kind of personal story uh, about this idea of waiting on standby. Uh, I'm someone who has been to a lot of airports and over the years have grown to have this strange fondness uh, for being around uh, airports when I'm on standby. I think it's perhaps the energy of the place, the idea of just grabbing a coffee and a good book and just lounging and people watching and you know, listening to music and just hanging out. But uh, I had this eight-hour layover, and that's a large amount of time to be stuck at an airport. So I tired of the food, I tired of my music, and decided to just catch a nap. So I went to my terminal and my gate, and not only did I catch a nap, I fell into a deep sleep and missed the boarding of my flight. I missed the flight itself. The flight attendants themselves had moved to a different booth altogether. I mean, everyone had gone, and I had just woken up. So I, I got what I wanted. I got my big, long nap and missed my flight. And all I could think of at the time was if I had to rush from gate to gate, I would never have missed it. But it was the idea of being kind of forced to wait for eight hours that allowed me to just fall to sleep and miss my opportunity, miss my flight. And so I got on standby, and I learned how to wait with greater expectation, right? As my name is going up the list, as they're calling out this name, that name, I'm listening to every announcement, you know, waiting until I get in line. And I did get home. But I think, I think a lot of times um, when God gives us a promise, when we're waiting, uh, there's a sense in which we should wait with this sense of expectancy, wait as if we are on standby from the get-go. So um, we're going to turn uh, first to um, Simeon. I'm going to walk through some of these points here and uh, develop in what ways he is a righteous. Uh, Dikios, this Greek word that's ascribed to Simeon. What does it mean to call Simeon and Joseph righteous? Jesus often spoke about righteousness. On the Sermon on the Mount, he declared that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So we are to desire this righteousness. He goes on in the Sermon on the Mount and says, in somewhat of a confounding statement to many, 
that unless our righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that statement? Um, In order to answer that, we might turn to the example that he provides, our prayer life. He points to the Pharisee who is on the street corner in the synagogue reciting these long prayers of maybe meaningless repetition that is blessing God because he is not like the social outcasts, that he's not like the tax collector. He's, uh, a, this Pharisee might be appearing righteous on the outside, but is actually prideful in a way that contrasts with the other kind of man that prays something like this. Jesus describes a man who is beating his breast, saying, Dear God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is someone who is dependent totally on God, that is humble before God, that is aware of his sin and his need of God. That's what it looks like to be more righteous before God, is to be more faithful to him, to come to him in our prayer and to admit our need of him in our life. So righteousness is defined by our prayer life, our faithfulness. And Simeon is one of these common men um, that Jesus describes, um, uh, sorry, one of these righteous men that Jesus describes. This is what we can can imagine his prayer life to look like. But he is also a a very common man in a way. Um, Simeon was a common name at that time. um, And um, this the introduction that Luke gives us of Simeon doesn't mention any of his credentials. It's just Simeon enters the temple and speaks this prophecy. Um, Despite that, a lot of scholars have tried to make these connections to Simeon being the father of Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee who taught the Apostle Paul. So they were claiming he was like a super Pharisee. He was uh, um, working for the council, working for the Sanhedrin. None of that has turned up any truth. It's a paper trace. There's nothing there. Simeon is not mentioned in terms of his credentials uh, by Luke. He is a common man in that sense. And what is uncommon about him is that he is led by the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit of God, we're told, is is upon him. It is leading his steps. Uh, The Spirit of God has given him a promise that he will see the Christ Messiah. The Holy Spirit is mentioned three times. Simeon's name is only mentioned twice. So what makes Simeon extraordinary here uh, is not his title. It's his reliance on the Spirit's guidance. That faithfulness is what defines him. That allows him to see the dawn of salvation. He glimpses into the dawn of salvation when he sees an eight-day-old infant. Remember, Jesus is only eight days old, and he knows this is the Christ Messiah. He knows that because of his reliance on the Spirit. And he has such great faith that this child will bring salvation not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. And uh, so he speaks prophetically. He speaks prophetically, being guided by the Spirit. Um, He speaks prophetically um, to Mary. Uh, He turns to her and, and says that pain and sorrow will be upon her, and that her heart and soul will be pierced. And actually the verb there is that her soul will be constantly pierced. It's a perpetual sense of anguish because she witnessed the passion firsthand. She watched the Son of God die. And, uh, you know, in that moment, witnessing the passion, she felt that. And that is with her. 
Um, and it's important here because in the Gospel of Luke, this might be our force foreshadowing of the crucifixion itself um, when Simeon speaks to that. He also uh, speaks uh, about Jesus in a way that amazes Mary and Joseph. They had just been visited by angelic beings. You would think after that there would be a little thing someone could say to you that might amaze you about this child who has already been visited and announced, and yet Simeon is given words that speak to them and amaze them at the things that are being said about him. Um, and this is part of God's, I think, ongoing revelation. Um, just as they're amazed here, we might turn to after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, the Apostle Peter gets uh, a word from the Lord that there's no separation between us and them, between Jew and Gentile. And he declares this to the other apostles, and they are just as amazed. This ongoing revelation that salvation is for all, they perhaps didn't pick up, despite that they were with Jesus for three years of his earthly ministry, but yet the Spirit of God is still revealing things to them, even after his life, death, and resurrection. Um, It says that, the hearts from many, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed through Christ. Um, and I want to really dwell on this last verse in our passage. Um, because what does it mean that Christ reveals the thoughts from our hearts? I mean, of course, uh, Christ reveals that it's not just the act of violence that's wrong. It's anger. It's that thought. That, that seed of that thought that brings evil. It's not just the act of adultery, it's lustful thoughts that he reveals in, in us when we come to him. Think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and looks righteous on the outside. He says, he has followed every commandment. Every commandment, what do I lack? And Jesus tells him to sell his possessions, give to the poor, realize his treasure is in heaven, and come and follow him. Jesus reveals the thoughts of his heart. He reveals that his outward appearance of righteousness uh, is less important than, than what's here, than what he feels, than his attitude towards God at this point. And, um, and I think that that is profound, that Jesus knows those thoughts, he cares, and he reveals those to us. And um, so what's important here is that on the surface... Um, Simeon might appear like a common man, but he is very significant in God's story. He is comforted. He is truly comforted when he holds the infant, Jesus, in his arms. He doesn't bring comfort to Jesus. Jesus brings that to him when he holds him in his arms. Think about the fact that he is personally given a promise, and he is comforted when he sees the Christ Messiah. That's the realization of his personal promise. But also, the nation of Israel has been given a promise that for centuries had been written about by the prophets, and it is realized in that moment Simeon holds the infant in his arms. Likewise, we here today are beneficiaries of that promise. We have the same reason to be overjoyed. He is overjoyed. He can go to his death with joy and peace and shalom, knowing that he has seen the Christ Messiah personally, nationally, and now the whole world should be just as joyous. So, there's Simeon, our, our righteous man. So let's turn to um, Joseph, uh, who is comforted in a different but yet similar way. Remember, Simeon's comforted by holding Jesus. So is, so is Joseph. He holds him, wraps him in linen, and holds him in the tomb cut into the rock, into his tomb. 
and he provides a proper burial for Jesus. This would have been important at the time when the Romans might have left a body on a cross for days, weeks, to decay and rot, to incite fear on those gazing upon it so they wouldn't commit such crimes. But clearly God has another story in mind with Jesus. And he calls Joseph to fulfill that, and he does respond. He is righteous in his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness that is incredibly bold. He goes before Pilate, the man who has just killed Jesus, asks for his body, and he is granted that. Plus, all the other apostles who have already left everything for Jesus, they've fled. Joseph is there. The women are there. He is faithful to this man who has just been killed. He's a dead dead body. It's a, it's a corpse at this point that he's looking at. But yet he's having faith that the promise that the Spirit has convicted him, that this is Christ's Messiah. He doesn't know how God, that God will raise him maybe, but he is yet faithful past the end. And that's a tremendous amount of faith. That's what defines his righteousness. He is uh, fearlessly waiting. And what I mean by this is we might think of waiting initially as this passive state, but what does waiting look like for Joseph? It's when he goes before Pilate, when he asks for this body. That's what it means to wait for the kingdom of God. It means for him to take these steps, to do these things, to fulfill the promise that he's been given. And um, he is bold and fearless in that way. Whereas Simeon speaks prophetically to uh, Mary and prays to God, Joseph fulfills a prophecy. In Isaiah, it says that when the Messiah comes, he will die with the weight of sins on his uh, back and that uh, he will be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the wealthy, despite that he had done no violence, nor was there deceit on his mouth. So this idea of the Messiah being assigned a a wealthy tomb uh, is realized by Joseph giving this tomb cut into a rock. A tomb cut into the rock is something that it's acquired through lots of money or prestige, and um, so he fulfills that prophecy. And I would just ask, you know, for us to consider that for a minute. When he acquired this tomb, he didn't expect maybe that he would hold Christ Messiah in it. But God calls him to give his tomb for that reason. Likewise, we might have things that we've acquired through one means or another that God's calling us to use for the sake of the kingdom. And that's just not material things. Um, Relationally, that's true as well. When my wife and I first got married three years ago, uh, we weren't believers. We weren't professed followers of Christ. But through our relationship, he used that to grow us closer to him. We began reading his word. We began asking these questions together. And one thing led to another. We gave our lives to Christ the same day, the same service. And since that day... We have been walking together, growing closer to God, and he used that relationship that originally was not conceived that way, but now is surely the reason why I'm even here today before you. And so um, I would ask you, what are the things that God's put in your life? The material things, the relationships, what are the things that you might repurpose for the sake of the kingdom? What does that look like for you? So who is Joseph? Let's, Let's just take a step back. Um, he is a man who uh, we know is a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, a prominent Jew. And uh, this does not qualify him as more righteous than another because just as many Pharisees had condemned Jesus, had not believed in him. 
We know he's from Arimathea, a town of the Jews. Everyone knows Joseph's from Arimathea. That's the one thing we do know. But yet, what does that really reveal? Um, most modern geographers, cartographers, couldn't tell you where that is on a map at all. It's disappeared off the face of the map. So where he's from, what he does, doesn't qualify him as more righteous than someone else. It's the fact that he puts his faith in Christ. Remember, Christ who has been crucified, who is dead, that he puts into his tomb at this point, that's his righteousness. Just like Simeon putting his faith in this eight-day-old child that the Holy Spirit reveals to him as the Son of God. That's their righteousness. So let's move to what it means to wait. And I'll kind of expand on this idea um, of waiting. Uh, the fuller definition of uh, this word might be waiting in expectation. Um, they're not just waiting, but they're waiting with anticipation, as you see. Uh, they're waiting the way maybe a good waiter uh, pays attention actively to when you need a drink, when you need an order, uh, when you need a ticket to, to go. They're attending to you, serving you, waiting actively on with you. And, um, the way a, a groom waits for his bride, that's what it means to wait in expectation. The way even someone who's a good listener attends to someone speaking, that's waiting. Even though you're not speaking, you're actively engaged. You're actively uh, part of that communication. And so they are waiting. As I mentioned, Simeon was waiting for the Christ Messiah, but he is still waiting for the realization of that. Even once he sees this child, he's still waiting for the consolation of Israel. He knows it's coming, but he's waiting. Joseph, likewise, holds Jesus in his tomb, not knowing God's plan, but knowing that he's fulfilling part of God's plan, but he's waiting. So again, what does that look like for you? Um, I'm going to use this illustration uh, again of the way I waited at the airport on standby. And you get the idea of what it means to wait on standby at the airport, but what does that look like in our day-to-day life? What does that practically mean? It might mean uh, one of many things. For example, not maybe getting distracted into the news, getting sucked into that, getting sucked into technology and social media, of course, are obvious signs of distraction. But it might also mean uh, social relationships that we need to cut ties with. It might mean ending gossip or whatever it is that's distracting us from the promises of God. How can we better wait? How can we better attend to God's promise and call on our life? And it might be actively waiting and seeking Him in that way. And the best biblical illustration that always comes to mind about waiting and watching of course, is the Garden of Gethsemane moment when Jesus comes to his apostles and our disciples and says, wait here while I go over there and pray. And he comes back and he says, wait here and keep watch. And again, a third time, he comes back and says, stay here and pray that you do not enter into temptation. And so, He's not just telling them not to fall asleep. He's telling them to keep watch. He's telling them to actively pray. and gives them instructions about how to pray so that you do not enter into temptation. And that's what it looks like to wait, to keep watch. The Roman watchman, the centurion, um, 
for example, watching a, a group of prisoners at night, their job was a matter of, of life and death. Um, they were expected to stay awake all night, make sure no prisoners escape, and if a prisoner did escape because they fell asleep, they would be expected to end their life or someone would basically do that for them. <laughs> it was a matter of life and death to stay awake. And so that idea of the watchman, keeping watch, was really important in that job. But in our spiritual life, we might think about how that applies. Staying awake, what does that mean? Keeping awake is probably the heart of the spiritual life. And that might look many different ways for you. Um, But certainly Simeon stays awake and keeps watch. Certainly Joseph stays awake and keeps watch. Uh, And their promises are fulfilled. They are able to see the joy of salvation. So I want to kind of conclude by uh, just kind of explaining why these two passages, what brings them together. Um, I think it's this perspective that they provide um, that's consistent with one another that I'm most attracted to. Um, A lot of passages about Simeon, I mentioned, try to claim that he might be this famous Pharisee, he might be this part of this lineage or that lineage. But after all that research, he is really just an ordinary man and in a lot of ways, uh, as Luke's words confirm. And likewise, the, the passage with Joseph, uh, one commentator actually called it transitional. I had to like go back and reread it and make sure I was reading that correctly. But in Luke's gospel, he thought that this moment's just transitional to the resurrection. And in some ways, maybe he's correct, but I, I actually think that this transitional moment is what it means to wait in expectation, to wait in anticipation, to wait as if we are in standby, because he is waiting on Christ, on the Messiah. And it's not just transitional, but absolutely instrumental to the purpose that God has in mind. Likewise, Simi might appear ordinary at some level, but what makes him extraordinary what moves him from normal to necessary is that he relies on the Holy Spirit to see, to be guided, and he is necessary for God's story. And so we might feel sometimes that we're just another face in the crowd, but this man being guided by the Holy Spirit is able to announce to all people that the dawn of salvation is about to happen. These transitional moments that we're in sometimes, we're waiting and waiting for something, waiting for a building, might actually be absolutely instrumental and essential to that process. And so, in the days, hours, weeks, months, decades to come, we're called to wait, as if we are in standby, to wait with greater expectation uh, for the day, for the promise, for the call that we have been given. So, I'll end us in, in prayer and uh, just say a couple words here. So, to Jesus, we um, offer this message up to you. We thank you for calling us, for blessing us, for giving us faith, hope, and love in all things. Uh, We pray for your spirit and his guidance in these moments of anticipation. In these moments, we pray and seek you. We seek your presence, Jesus, and um, We thank you for all the blessings that you provide for us. Amen.